This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Disinformation is overwhelming our culture. From politics to medicine, investments to history, we're drowning in it. And so I've invited Nina Jankowitz back to the show. Nina is the Disinformation Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Institute and author of How to Lose the Information War. One of the big surprises of the presidential campaign was the explosion of fake news on the internet. Fantastic tales that some believe to be true. I cannot believe that every single day I have not one, not two, but like four or five stories around sexual harassment every day. And it's not like I'm repeating the same stories. And the door is just going to keep opening wider and wider. Since I joined Twitter in 2011, misogyny and misogynists have amply demonstrated they will dog my every step. My spirituality, my faith, being a hillbilly, I can say that, you can't, all of it is fair game. Social media platforms in general do a terrible job of policing misinformation because their algorithms are actually designed to promote disinformation and fake news. I'm Nina Jankowicz, and I'm trying to make the internet a safer, more equitable place for women. Sorry, not sorry. Nina, welcome back to the show. So happy to see you. Thanks for having me voice. back. Yeah, of course. A lot of things have changed. Since it's hard you were to believe. <laughs> yeah, the last time we talked, I think, was in the spring, and then we had the election, and then we had the insurrection, and everything related to disinformation, COVID, and protests. It's just everything. There was also another impeachment. Oh God! Yeah, an inauguration. Yes, yes. <laughs> so, can you give us just an overview? of the disinformation landscape as it stands in the post-Trump world? (sighs) So I think like a lot of people want to think that it's just a return to normal now that we have a competent administration in the White House and people who care about truth. But the thing that worries me as a disinformation researcher is that we get a little too complacent. We just had a huge historic event here in Washington. The whole city was shut down. There are still National Guard troops here. And it's a result of disinformation. It's a result of people believing conspiracy theories. And those online theories 
driving them to offline action. And while I think a lot of these groups have retreated somewhat, they're staying quiet or they've gone to other platforms, I think we need to be really careful to make sure that we're keeping an eye on it and make sure that we are doing the hard work of returning our democracy to truth because otherwise we're going to see a repeat of this. And if I were these extremists who traffic in conspiracy theories and disinformation, I would just be waiting for the right moment to bring this stuff back into the fray. So I would describe it as under the surface right now, waiting to bubble up. And that's a really scary place to be. Yeah, exactly. Well, hopefully not the storm. I hope the storm was January 6th and we might see some flare-ups or some weather events, (laughs) but hopefully it's not as bad as that. Hopefully the folks in law enforcement and in the federal government are paying attention that they were afraid to pay during the Trump administration. That's my hope, but I'm not sure. I want to get into QAnon because every single member of Congress that I have spoken to since the insurrection, I've asked this question of, they posted everything online. How were we not better prepared for this? That part was not misinformation. That was real information. And everybody said, like, literally all of them were like, we didn't think that they had this kind of capacity or we didn't take them seriously enough. So let's unpack QAnon a little bit. Give us a timeline, because to me, that is the most fascinating part about this, is how the disinformation traveled so quickly and that people became devout believers in this cult. Yeah, cult is the perfect word for it. You know, a lot of people call it a movement, but I think that undersells how damaging it actually is. So 2016, fall of 2016, as we're heading toward the presidential election is when we first start hearing rumors about Pizzagate, which is this ridiculous theory that prominent Democrats are child traffickers who drink the blood of children and that they are holding kids hostage at a DC pizzeria in the basement of this pizzeria. Pizzagate started on the internet shortly before election day when right-wing sites that make up fake news spread rumors that Hillary Clinton was involved in a child sex trafficking ring in D.C. Court documents say Welch read online that the Comet restaurant was harboring child sex slaves and he was armed to help rescue them. He surrendered peacefully when he found no evidence that underage children were being harbored in the restaurant. There is no basement. (laughs) I've done shows and eaten at this pizzeria. There's no basement in this pizzeria. And a couple months later, after Trump wins the election, famously, a man comes and tries to shoot up this pizzeria. And that's the seed of the QAnon conspiracy theory. That's where it blossoms from. We don't know who Q is, but he claims to be somebody who has a super top secret Q level security clearance in the federal government. And that Trump, he knows from his security clearance, is going to be the savior of the world, is going to stop this pedophilia that's going on and right all of the wrongs in the United States. And there are a lot of different splintering theories that come off from that kind of main thrust, including that Robert Mueller was actually secretly investigating these Democrats. And when he released his report, it was going to be doomsday for all these people, including Hillary Clinton. But one by one, they've all fallen like dominoes. And it hasn't seemed to matter for QAnon. And I think that's what's most interesting about it because it just continues to morph. I've been describing it as kind of a conspiracy lint ball 
it just picks up everything in its path. It gets stuck to you and you can't really get it off. And so during COVID is when it's really picked up a lot of traction because people are super online right now. They are using their computers for connection. They're trying to make sense of all of the confusing, scary things that are happening. And when there's a lot that can't be explained, that's when people tend to turn to conspiracy theories. And so we've seen COVID anti-vax theories get sucked up by QAnon. We've seen the 5G conspiracy theories get sucked up by them. We've seen the return of this pedophilia narrative come back. And then as President Trump started to plant little seeds about election rigging from June. Which he'd been doing for, he had been doing that for like two years before the election even happened. You could even say he was doing it in 2016, but he really doubled down in around June of 2020 and started to plant these very specific narratives about certain states and the way things were going to go, ballots and rivers, all this sort of stuff. That got picked up in it as well. And the Stop the Steal movement post-November was really dovetailing with QAnon. And so we have the convergence of all these narratives where you're one step removed from anti-vax theories, QAnon, white supremacy, anywhere you look. And that's all powered by social media as well. And needless to say, Q has not stopped posting, I would think. It's not gone. Well, so actually after November, Q has gone silent himself, but the movement still exists. But what do you mean himself? Can't we figure out where (laughs) it's coming from? Like, is it a real human? What's happening? So that is unclear. A lot of the people who have been the foremost researchers of this, people like Brandy Zadrozny and Ben Collins at NBC News, now seem to think it's probably a group of people. But the way that it worked was that he was posting his messages on this image board called 8kun, and he had a special code that signified it was Q or people related to Q. And this person or group of people stopped posting a little bit after the election. And there was no word, especially after inauguration, when there were all these theories that actually Biden had a body double and he was going to be arrested and Trump was going to remain president. And people were really, they were struggling with how to interpret yet another one of these theories falling like dominoes. And still people are finding ways to twist events and find ways out of it to fit their worldview. And that's really scary. And what's cult-like about it and why actually I think our reaction, a lot of general public's reaction is, ha ha, look at these lunatunes, like they're buying into this conspiracy theory. But just like with a cult, we need to de-radicalize these people and do that with empathy, which I think is hard for a lot of people to understand. We need to come at them from an emotional angle and be like, can you talk about why this is something that appeals to you? We need to give them a soft place to land. Oh, exactly. Precisely. But here's the deal. It is so mind-boggling to me that within a four- or five-year period that the followers of QAnon got to the point where they were willing to storm the fucking Capitol to try to take over the government and the people who are members of Q who have actually infiltrated the government, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. 
President Trump tweeting congratulations today to QAnon conspiracy theorist Marjorie Taylor Greene after she won a seat in the House. The president calling Greene a, quote, future Republican star and a real winner. Now, Greene is known for some extreme and racist views. She's warned of a, quote, Islamic invasion. She did that after two Muslims won office. She has described black people as, quote, slaves to Democrats. I can't believe how it happened so quickly. And the other thing I want to hear your thoughts on is that I have this theory that QAnon gave all of the hate groups one umbrella. So it made them all more powerful because they had more people sort of united just under the guise of hate, not even hate of a specific thing, not anti-LGBTQ or they are just hate of everything and everyone. And so all of these different hate organizations or hate groups have come together under this one umbrella and it's making them a large numbers. There's estimated that it was something like 30 million people that are believers of QAnon theories, conspiracy theories. That's a lot of people. And obviously all of this is being organized on social media sites. So my question, I guess, is what responsibility do these social media companies bear for the spread of things like QAnon and other disinformation? So let me tackle the first part about the umbrella first. I think that's a great way to describe it. And actually, another thing that's powerful about QAnon is that people might ascribe to parts of the theory or parts of the cult. But if you did a Vox Pop with everybody who was at the Capitol on January 6th, they might not say, yeah, I'm a QAnon supporter explicitly, but they might adhere to parts of it. They might adhere to the Jewish space laser part of it, like Marjorie Taylor Greene did, or to the Save the Children anti-pedophilia part of it. And that's what makes it so insidious, I think. People don't necessarily know that they've signed up to this broader cult, even though they have ascribed to one part of the branch of the tree. In terms of the responsibility of social media platforms, it's frustrating. It's so frustrating to think about what happened on January 6th and see people like Sheryl Sandberg, for instance, saying, no, it was actually not that really much planned on Facebook. It was those other platforms like Parler and Gab. Talking about violence seemed to grow as it started getting closer to the uh, congressional meeting. And there seemed to have been some indications that this could get ugly. And the president himself is, is making some indications on that front. Looking back now, do you feel like there's anything Facebook could have done sooner? Well, we know this was organized online. We know that. Um, we, again, took down QAnon, Proud Boys, Stop the Steal. Anything that was talking about possible violence last week, our enforcement's never perfect, so I'm sure there were still things on Facebook. I think these events were largely organized on platforms that don't have our abilities to stop hate and don't have our standards and don't have our transparency. It was in plain sight in Facebook groups. And researchers like me have been sounding the alarm bell about conspiracy theories and disinformation and their offline effects, the detriment to democracy for a long time, not just to social media platforms, but to folks on Capitol Hill as well. In October, I was lucky enough to testify before Adam Schiff and the House Intel Committee, and no Republicans showed up. And even among the Democrats who were there, there was some kind of incredulity about like, oh, you really think these things are such a threat that these silly memes that people post online are such a threat? And yes, 
I think now it is clear that they are. What I hope to see from Congress as we move toward regulation with a Democratic majority is an emphasis on transparency and oversight. I want to know what action the platforms are taking. I want them to be held to account for upholding their terms of service because right now they're not protecting users. They're not equitably enforcing their terms of service and they're letting really harmful conspiracy theories, ones that have effects on public safety and public health, not to mention our democratic infrastructure, they're letting those proliferate. And I don't think Congress should stand for that. There are a lot of legitimate issues with freedom of speech that we have to watch out for, but we have limitations on freedom of speech in this country as well. And a lot of researchers, including Renee DeResta at Stanford, say freedom of speech does not mean freedom of reach. You can stand on the street corner and yell crazy stuff, but you shouldn't be able to reach 300 million people at any given time. And so I think we're going to see a lot more emphasis on figuring out exactly what's going on behind the scenes with these social media platforms and then holding them to account. And this really should not be a partisan issue, especially when members of Congress's lives were threatened so recently. I hope that we see some sense knocked into them. Although on January 6th, the evening of when they reconvened, we heard those conspiracy theories floated again. So I'm not holding my breath. Ron Johnson, the Republican from Wisconsin, has been a frequent critic about some of the decision making around security that was supposed to be at the Capitol on January 6th. And he's been very sympathetic to those in the crowd, especially Trump supporters who were there that day. In a new interview, he's really raising eyebrows. Here's what he had to say. I knew those are people that love this country, that uh, truly respect law enforcement, would never do anything to, to break a law. And so I wasn't concerned. Now, had the tables been turned, Joe, this could be in trouble. Had the tables been turned and President Trump won the election, and those were tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters, I might have been a little concerned. What part of this are foreign bad actors as well? Is it that the conspiracy theories are opening the window and then you have foreign countries that are taking advantage of the vulnerabilities? Yeah, that's exactly it. So the most practiced at this is Russia because they've been doing it for a long time. I always try to caution against people who are like, did Russia invent QAnon? No, just like Russia didn't invent racism or the abortion debate or the gun debate here in the United States. It's something that's endemic to us. And they're really good at keying in on those vulnerabilities. And so they're happy to amplify 5G conspiracy theories or things related to QAnon. That's what they love to do. China and Iran are a little less practiced at that. We saw, although Iran, ahead of the election, send those Proud Boys emails that looked like they were from the Proud Boys and were threatening Democrats who wanted to show up and vote in swing states. So the playbook, the online disinformation playbook that Russia opened up in 2016 is now for sale for anybody who wants to do it. It's been publicized, and, and these are tools available to anybody, foreign or domestic. And we haven't proven that it doesn't work that we're going to do anything about it. So, exactly, exactly. Because over the last four years, we've seen the Trump administration say that it wasn't actually happening. And I've been heartened to see the statements from Biden administration officials calling out Russia, calling out other actors who are using these tools. And I hope that once COVID gets under control, we see a really strong strategy, a coherent, centralized strategy come together from the Biden administration that includes not just the national security foreign policy perspective, but also includes people 
like the people who are on the front lines of this, teaching information literacy, empowering libraries and our public broadcasters, because we spend a dollar and 35 cents per person per year on the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And we wonder why things are so (laughs) polarized here. It's because we don't have a trustworthy, nonpartisan source of information that everybody turns to. In the UK, 68% of Brits would turn to the BBC in a time of crisis. And I don't think that we have that trust in any single media outlet here in the United States. And that's to our detriment. So that's the sort of stuff that we really need to think about holistically. And actors like Russia, like China, like Iran, they're going to keep doing this. It's cheap. It's easy. It's pretty effective. But we have to think about our own resilience here at home. And so far, we've really thought about only the security aspect of this. But we need to start thinking about the people, too. A hundred percent. And speaking of that, you mentioned before that social media companies are not protecting their users. You recently wrote an article in Wired about the sexual harassment women face on social media. Can you share your experience? I've been pretty lucky, I think. It's kind of weird to say this compared to what people like you receive, compared to people who are orders of magnitude more well-known than me. I don't get that many rape threats. I don't get that many. I still get violent threats. I get things about how I'm a traitor and deserve to be shot in the street, these sorts of things. And it's because of my research, my calling out of misogyny, my truth-telling. And what The research that we recently did at the Wilson Center shows is that women in public life are really not being served very well by the social media companies at all, that their reports are going unnoticed, that violent threats against them are allowed to stand. Ashley Judd, stupid fucking slut. You can't sue someone for calling them a cunt. If you can't handle the internet, fuck off, whore. I wish Ashley Judd would die a horrible death. She is the absolute worst. Ashley Judd, you're the reason women shouldn't vote. Twisted is such a bad movie, I don't even want to rape it. Whatever you do, don't tell Ashley Judd she'll die alone with a dried-out vagina. If I had to fuck an older woman, oh my God, I would fuck the shit out of Ashley Judd. That bitch is hot A. F, the unforgivable shit I would do to her. Online misogyny is a global gender rights tragedy, and it is imperative that it ends. In particular, women in politics are just receiving the most ridiculous amount of vitriol and gendered and sexualized disinformation that attacks them based on their gender, based on their alleged promiscuity more than anything else. So we collected 330,000 pieces of content across six social media platforms ahead of the election over two months for 13 women candidates in both political parties. It included Kamala Harris, Susan Collins, AOC, you name it. And 78% of that content was targeted at Kamala Harris. And they were all these narratives about heels up Harris, Joe and the hoe, alleging that Vice President Harris slept her way to the top, that she couldn't be in the position that she's in. At Time's Up, we actually created a hashtag called We Have Her Back that would just call out anyone in the media who is perpetuating this gender discrimination on Kamala because it's really prevalent. And let me just ask you what you think. What is it about 
harassing women in this way, sexualizing us, threatening us, dehumanizing us, that is so appealing to this part of the internet? Are they just trying to silence women? Well, I don't think there's a just about it. They absolutely are trying to silence women. So we describe the definition of like gender disinformation as coordination, intent, and falsity. So one of the things against Kamala, they claim she's a, a transgender man. She couldn't have possibly gotten to the position that she's in unless she were a man. So you've got your falsity there. You've got coordination because they're all sharing a photoshopped image. And the intent is to discredit her and to say, you shouldn't be in a position of power. And whether it's something like that, or whether it's the threats that you and I receive, the dogpiling, that sort of thing, the intent is to shut us up, to make us scared to use our voices. And I refuse to be frightened in that way because I know that there are young women who, you know, I just talked to today. I do a lot of mentoring with women in the national security space. They look up to me. If I'm going to lock my Twitter account or if I'm going to stop posting because I'm receiving that harassment, then somebody else is going to think, is it even worth it at all for me to be engaged in public life, to publish, to get my name out there? And my answer is absolutely. Yeah. I think about that all the time as far as young actors who might be afraid to dip their toe into using their voice or being an activist. And if any young person looked at the replies that I get, of course they're not going to speak up. They're not only silencing me, but they're also silencing future versions of me, which is just horrifying. And do you think this is just a right-wing thing? No, no, it's not. I know that for a fact because some of the criticism that I've done has awakened the very far left. When I've talked, for instance, about Russian support for the Sanders campaign, I got a lot of left-wing vitriol that was just as bad, frankly. It is a male thing primarily. It is related to the endemic misogyny in our country and frankly, the world that has existed for millennia. And one of the things I get a lot when I call out this harassment, and even when we released our paper, was uh, a lot of men saying, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen, saying that this is just the cost of being in public life. But there are plenty of studies that actually show that the tone and tenor of the harassment that women receive is very different than what our male counterparts get. They are attacked on substance. They're not attacked based on how they look or whether they have children. I get sent the empty egg carton meme a lot that says, oh, you're in your 30s and you don't have kids yet. Your fertility is waning. Better get on that, which like I find grotesque as if my only contribution to the world is baby making. My OBGYN, <laughs> who is a woman, once said that to me oh, after God. I had my son. So yeah, no, but it's so true because I'll look at, you know, Bradley Whitford, who is a very vocal actor. He fights for what he believes in. I would even say his tweets go further than mine. And you look at his replies, they're like, yeah, Bradley, you're right, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, wait a minute, how... Am I basically tweeting the exact same thing and yet being hit with such vitriol? And he has just cheerleading in his replies. It's so frustrating. And the other thing that drives me absolutely crazy, and I don't understand this, is Twitter and Facebook don't even have a reporting mechanism for sexual harassment. Yeah, so we brought this up as well. And I have to say, I've been pleasantly surprised with the response that we've gotten from the platforms. I think they do want to do better about it. But the thing is, the structure of these platforms is built for and by white cisgender men. So the problem that we experience aren't baked into the user experience because they don't get it. 
Before we talk about what Twitter is, we should talk about what Twitter was supposed to be. In the preamble to its original rules, Twitter stated, each user is responsible for the content he or she provides. We do not actively monitor and will not censor user content except in limited circumstances. In other words, Twitter was supposed to be a neutral platform where you could say anything to anyone with very few rules. We tried to lay that out really clearly in the report. And one of the things that we are asking them to do is introduce incident reporting. So rather than individually reporting comments or tweets that you get that are harassing, you can create a picture of the whole situation that's going on. The tweet that instigated the dog piling, if somebody with a high follower count has sicked their followers on you, for instance, or the situation that is occurring from a 40,000 foot level, because those content moderators sitting there needing to go go through individual pieces of content with absolutely no context and make a decision in 15 or 20 seconds or even less, they need that context to understand what's going on with you and that a threat with an empty egg carton meme isn't just a reminder to go buy eggs. It's actually a gendered piece of abuse. So we're hoping that we'll see some movement on that. And we're hoping that Congress We'll also set an example in some of the social media regulation that they're going to be passing that is meant to protect women and minorities because right now the reporting mechanisms, as you said, are not doing us a service. I just saw today one of the reporters I admire most at the New York Times, Nicole Perlroth, who just has a new book out on cybersecurity, is leaving Twitter because of the abuse and harassment that she has had to deal with in that very heavily male-dominated field. And nobody should have to do that because her job is to be on Twitter informing people. And as a result of her career, that's what she's had to endure. And it just sickens me. And I get it because it's not just about how it hurts the person that's being attacked, but also like, I have kids. And at some point, they're going to be on social media and they're going to read these horrible things that people say to their mother. And that part just kills me. Also, what about law enforcement? In my experience, both laws and law enforcement are not sufficient to manage threats, to manage harassment, and they just don't take it seriously. It's the online thing. It's the same thing that plagued us before January 6th. They're like, oh, these are just threats online. Until somebody shows up outside your house, we can't really do anything about it. And Congress hasn't reauthorized the Violence Against Women Act since 2019. And Oh, I know. So once that's up for reconsideration again, we're hoping that some of the representatives who are co-sponsoring it, like Jackie Spear in California, who's been really great and super supportive on these issues, a huge advocate for women's safety online, will put in some provisions to educate law enforcement and to help them kind of make the connection between the online and the offline, because I'm sure there are many listeners today, and I'm sure you've had to do this as well. We have physical threat considerations from the stuff that we endure online. I've had to invest in anti-doxing services to make sure my personal information and my family's personal information isn't out there. I worry about when I'm at public conferences and things, making sure that I have people around me who are looking out for my safety. It's a very real thing when you're a woman, just like we we don't walk through dark parks alone at night. We have different considerations for how we interact with online content and law enforcement needs to be there to support us. But frankly, they're not doing a great job for domestic abuse and violence survivors either. So hopefully all those regulations are strengthened and empowered.
Nina, what do you say to people who claim this is free speech? <laughs> you don't have a free speech to follow me around on the sidewalk and shout that I'm a cunt or a bitch. That would be stalking. And there are such things as cyber stalking and cyber harassment. And frankly, you are trying to suppress my own right to free speech by targeting me like this. That's what I say. And many women around the world, as evidenced by the focus group interviews that we did, are disengaging because of this behavior. So it's their speech that's being suppressed, not random anonymous trolls on the internet who think that they can criticize my appearance, my decision whether or not to have children and anything else about me, the fact that I was born a woman. I want to switch gears for a minute and go to COVID. What's the disinformation sphere looking like for COVID right now? I'm kind of pleasantly surprised. Right now, there seems to be, although there persists on TikTok, all sorts of people who claim that masks don't work and vaccines are full of harmful chemicals. Americans' vaccine hesitancy in general is going down a little bit, and that's encouraging. Now that the vaccine is available, people are getting it. People probably know people who have gotten it who haven't dropped dead because they got it and aren't being tracked by Bill Gates with the supposed microchips that are in them now. I think people are seeing it and starting to be a little bit less scared of it. And also we're a year into the pandemic and people want out of it. So I'm pleasantly surprised, but all of the same disinformation that we have seen about masks, about the safety of the vaccine, about whether COVID is real or not persists. And looking at some images from CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, a lot of people not wearing masks, a lot of people wearing masks incorrectly. We are in a private facility, um, and we do want to be respectful of the um, ordinances that they have as their private property. So please, everyone, when you're in the ballroom, when you're seated, you should still be wearing a mask. So if everybody can go ahead, work on that. I know, I know it's, it's not the most fun. You, you have the right... You have the right to set the own rules in your own house, and we're borrowing somebody else's house. So we need to comply with our rules. The Biden administration has a pretty big hill to climb in terms of messaging about not only the vaccine, but the necessity of some of these measures that we're going to have to continue to take even after we reach herd immunity to stem the flow of the virus and finally kick its butt. I want to know what you think the psychological trait is that people may have when they get sucked into disinformation. Because we're looking at part of the new age community has become sucked into QAnon. Are you finding anything in your research about the type of person that is vulnerable to disinformation? I think it is more uniting than we might think. Because I've seen it again on all sides of the political spectrum in communities as diverse as gun rights activists and new age yoga moms. I think the thing right now that is worrisome to me is the need for community. And we all need that right now, being as isolated as we are. And I think that's why Facebook groups in particular and Telegram channels and a lot of these more insular kind of covert online communities have been hotbeds for disinformation because there's this level of trust there. 
people trust the yoga mom down the street that they go to class with or somebody who they've seen posting on Facebook, even if they live in another state for a couple of years talking about their yoga practice. I'm picking on yoga a lot, which I feel like I'm allowed to do because I used to teach yoga. But that's the sort of thing that people's guards are down a little bit. And so they trust information in those spaces. And I think that's what makes it so virulent sometimes. But that sense of community, a sense of uncertainty and fear, which we all have right now, that's great fertile ground for disinformation. But the community thing, being part of something bigger than yourself is something that every human wants. Yeah, I think that's right also. And then trusting where the information is coming from probably plays a big part of that. Because if Janet posted it on her Facebook account, it's got to be real. She has no ulterior motives. What does the next few years look like for disinformation? Will the 2022 election be as influenced as the 2020 election? I think so. I think it's going to take us a long time to walk back from this precipice. If you look at the path that we've traveled, say, from 2014 onward, when like all the presidential nominees were just announcing their candidacies, things have gotten a lot worse. Even from 2016, things have gotten worse. And it's partly because of the fragmentation of our online communities. It's partly because of the polarizing rhetoric and the normalization of the use of disinformation in our political culture. And that's the part that's going to be hardest to put back in the bag. I'm dismayed by the rhetoric that we see on Capitol Hill that polarizes this issue, that politicizes this issue, because ultimately it affects all of us. It's not about somebody's imminent political future. It's about the survival of our democracy. And I think our representatives need to recognize that. And some of them do, but some of them are just self-serving. Power does weird shit to people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And they're willing to imperil the republic for their own personal gain. And that became normalized during the Trump administration. So I hope we see an end to that, but it's going to take a shift. And it's going to take voters voting these people out, which we haven't really seen a sea change of that yet. I don't think we had like the strong rebuke that we really wanted of that sort of behavior in 2020. So that's going to play a big role. I think if there is one administration that can do this, it's the Biden administration. They are committed to healing this country. They are committed to truth. The way that they've handled some of the crises that have gone on so far, I think has been commendable. And transparency. Yes, yes, exactly. Which I think is really important. I want you to run down for people how they can recognize disinformation and If there are any actionable items about what they can do when they see it, fill us in. So first thing to recognize is that disinformation runs on emotion. If you feel yourself getting really, really worked up, that's a good indication that something manipulative is happening. And that can come from mainstream media too. So just good practice. Put some distance between yourself and your device for a little bit. And then when you come back, if you're still thinking about it, here's when you do a couple different things. One, if you're on a source that's unfamiliar to you, check that source. See if you can find anything about their funding. Do they have contact information on their page? Has that author written anything before? You can even take some of the text that you're reading and drop it into Google and see if it comes up anywhere else. Because if it comes up with copied and pasted across another five different websites that are just as shady as the one that you're on, that's a good indication that it's probably monetary disinformation that's trying to get clicks and eyeballs on ads. And then similarly for visual 
disinformation, silly memes and things you find online, you can do a reverse image search. And if you're using Chrome, this is actually built into the Chrome browser. Just right click on the image and click search Google for image. And it will show you similar images on the internet. So you can tell sometimes if something's been edited or misattributed. A lot of times we see, particularly in crisis situations, floods, hurricanes, things like that, an image from an earlier crisis attributed to something that's happening now. So that's a great way to spot disinformation as well. And if you find this stuff, if you know for sure that you've encountered some hate speech or something that is COVID disinformation, report it. We all tend to think, yeah, these reports don't go anywhere. And in fact, we've just talked about how some of them don't. But the platforms learn from that. And if you see a post that you're going to report within a group or even just somewhere else online, the automated intelligence and artificial intelligence that is helping the algorithms learn what content is trustworthy and what content isn't, they're going to gain information from that. So taking that extra 30 seconds to report that content is really important. And if it's something really bad, don't be afraid to call out the support for Facebook or Twitter or Instagram publicly. Because sometimes that public pressure is what tips the balance. They don't know all the time what's going on on their platform. It's impossible for them to know because of the immense scale that they're dealing with. And that's not to give them too much credit. But when it's something that could be potentially really harmful to public safety, public health, beyond, that's when it's incumbent on us as citizens to act. And finally, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? The persistence of our journalists, I think, gives me hope right now. The fact that we have seen during really difficult times economically, dogged, investigated journalism, really important investigations that have held power to account. I think that gives me hope because journalism truly is the fourth estate for our democracy. It can't function without it. It's how we are informed to make our choices at the ballot box. And if it can survive the Trump administration, it can survive anything and thrive, I think, and make our democracy more robust. Well, Nina, you give me hope. So thank you so much for everything you do. And thanks for being a part of the podcast again. We'll now go to Ms. Jankowitz. Thank you. Chairman Schiff and distinguished members of the committee, it is an honor to testify before you today on the degradation of our information ecosystem and its exploitation by malign actors. This is a threat that is dismantling democracy. As Americans right now exercise their democratic rights, it is critical the nation is informed about how disinformation might blunt their voice and their vote. I came to study disinformation through the lens of Russian influence operations. My work has led me to an unsettling conclusion. Not only have the U.S. government and social media platforms all but abdicated their responsibility to stop the threat of foreign disinformation, domestic disinformation now runs rampant. It is amplified in the media, online, in the halls of Congress, and from the White House itself. It does our adversaries work for them, leaving us vulnerable to continued manipulation and leaving our democracy imperiled. There are some truly vile people on the internet, small, weak men who are terrified of truth, of women, of the world not being the small, insular, protective world for them that they'd want it to be. And rather than do better, they've doubled down on being the worst possible humans ever attacking everything that doesn't conform to their shitty little worldview. We can't make them better people, but we also can't pretend their actions don't have real-world consequences. 
Social media companies, however, we can blame. Time after time, this content is reported. Death threats, actual Nazis, rape threats, sexual harassment, and no action is taken. Twitter doesn't even have a mechanism to report sexual harassment. And if you don't think this is a thing, look at my Twitter mentions on, I don't know, basically any tweet I leave open. It is a thing. We can't make these people better, but social media companies can shut them up. They can take away their ability to easily network. They just need to start thinking and acting responsibly. Their perception that the right of these trolls to use their platform and say whatever they want is more important than the experience of their victims. And the societal cost of their lies and attacks is just sheer stupidity. So I am calling on every social media platform to immediately add sexual harassment and disinformation into their reporting tools. They need to take this seriously and they need to start acting. It's time to shut the abusers down. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 